Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from tolovehonorandvacuum.com and I am here with my daughter, Rebecca. Hello. And we have an exciting guest. We decided that this week you get to see more than just our faces. And so we invited <laughs> Rachel Joy Welcher, who is the author of the awesome book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. <laughs> and Rachel, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's an honor. I feel like we're kind of like soldiers in the same battle. Mm-hmm. I think so. <laughs> and it was so funny because over the weekend, my husband read your book and I've been reading your book mm-hmm. and you talk about so many of the same books and talking back to purity culture that we talk about in the great sex rescue. It's like, oh, she gets us. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> from a different perspective. That's yeah. what's so cool yeah. is we're talking about it from a totally different lens, like a different side of the same coin kind of thing. So yes, which yeah. is so needed. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're actually really great companion books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because oh. it's, it's, it's really interesting as we're reading excerpts and stuff. You know, what we, what we want to do in The Great Sex Rescue is not address purity culture quite as much because we knew there were other books that did it really well. <laughs> and so, we, you know, we looked at a lot of the same teachings, but we didn't tackle purity culture itself. So that's why you are here, so that you okay. can look for us. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So I want to focus on one particular aspect of the book, but before we get to that, do you want to give <clears throat> us like your snapshot of why you wrote the book and what you see the problems with purity culture? It is hard to summarize quickly because there are so many facets, but I started this research in graduate school and my goal was to revisit the books of my youth on dating and marriage and sex and see what they, how they communicated to victims of sexual abuse. So that was actually my dissertation. And I was so interested and moved by that research that I decided to expand it to tackling what other messages were we taught in Christian purity culture that weren't actually biblical. Mm-hmm. And so my book is, it, it comes out of a love for the church. I, I love the church and I want her to do better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I have a, an Orthodox biblical sexual ethic, but I do believe that purity culture did make a lot of mistakes and hindsight is twenty twenty. And so I think it's worth looking back over some of those messages and seeing, did they really come from scripture or were there other sources and how can we do better moving forward? Perfect. And how do you define purity culture? What would you say you mean? Well, so there's been a purity culture throughout generations and in different cultures, but I focus on American evangelical purity culture, late 1990s, early 2000s. So that focus of the true love weights, the the purity rings, the books, so many books, Mm -hmm. um, and that real focus on abstinence education, both in Christian circles and in public schools. Mm -hmm. So you're not, just to reiterate, what you mean when you say that that you have an orthodox biblical sexual ethic is that you still believe that sex is meant for marriage, but you think that the way that it was talked about did a lot of harm. That's exactly right. Yep. Well summarized. Okay. So I want to talk about, I think it's chapter six. Yep. Was it chapter chapter six? six. So here's the big thing. So often as teenagers were growing up in the late nineties, you know, in the two thousands and even today, the church gave the impression that as long as you do everything right, as long as you don't have sex until you're married and you stay pure and you do all these things, then sex is going to be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we all heard. And and what did you find when you started talking to people? Oh man, <laughs> you know, actually, it it was it was kind of heartbreaking because the most common thread I saw was that people felt lied to by the mm-hmm. church. And so, even though I don't believe it, this promise came from Scripture, and I don't believe it came ultimately from the church, people associated it with a Christian view. And so, then the question was, okay. If I was lied to about this, then what else is the church lying to me about? And so I've seen it really impact people's faith. People are deconstructing their faith because of these failed purity culture promises. So it's, it is so much more serious, I think, than even I realized before I dug into the research and started doing interviews that people are truly questioning their faith because of things like this. So it's really serious. Yeah, I, I, I liked how you talked about something in your book, which we found was so missing in so many of the books, which is just sexual pain, vaginismus. Right. That was a large part of what we focused on too in our survey. Mm. And one of our, our outcome variables, one of the things that we were trying to measure was how different teachings affected sexual pain. And I, we were so glad that you put that in there because, you know, women, Christian women in the evangelical world have twice the rate of sexual pain as 
everyone else. Is that right? Oh my That's God. been documented for yeah. decades at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you know, you do everything right. You wait for the wedding night and then sex, you can't, for a lot of women, they can't even, they can't even achieve penetration because it hurts so much. Right. And, and the question then we have to ask is why, what is it that we are communicating mm-hmm. that would make, you know, psychologically and physically that would cause this? And I think that's, uh, I'm so glad that you guys are digging into this more deeply because it is more common than I realized yeah. um, sexual pain and, and just even throughout marriage, like different illnesses that impact the ability to have that kind of intimacy with your spouse for different seasons. That was never addressed in any of the dating or purity books that I read growing up, that there might be seasons of celibacy within marriage for different reasons. That was, that it was all new to me. Or even, or even telling the guys, Hey, you know, there's such a thing as her period. <laughs> There's such a thing as the postpartum phase. <laughs> and it's not difficult for you. Um, like <laughs> you might be a little frustrated, but trust me, she's got it worse because it's happening to mm-hmm. her. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's the problem. We see this whole thing, but if you just wait until marriage, you'll never have to wait again. That's, that's the it. message they're given. And mm-hmm. that's right. not true at all. Because if you mm-hmm. never have to wait again, you never have to consider your spouse as a person with experiences, mm-hmm. with feelings, exactly. with needs, with desires, with priorities. You mm-hmm. don't actually need to see them as a human. You see them as an object that you get to use mm-hmm. whenever you want. They're now your plaything. They're um, your outlet. I mean, yeah. I think what I think it really taught us to view our spouses as sexual outlets rather than sexual partners. And it's so strange that that came from Christian resources, this selfish, selfish view of sex in marriage. But I think you guys are exactly right. You're hitting the nail on the head that we communicated this message that made sex seem like a reward and a right once you get married. And that is not the way it's talked about in scripture, right? It's a way of serving and loving your spouse. And so I think that the selfish attitudes towards sex are very common in evangelical culture because of these books. Mm -hmm. And what I find so sad too, is I know when I, when I did my original surveys, we we just finished a survey of 20,000 women, but when I did my original ones of about 3000 women back in 2011, when I was writing the good girl's guide to great sex, I looked specifically at the honeymoon and how the honeymoon was impacted and and how people enjoyed it, et cetera. And so many women, one of their main things that they expressed sadness about was that they hadn't waited and they felt like they had failed. Uh, And I think that's a very difficult line to walk. If you want to communicate a biblical sexual ethic, but at the same time, it simply isn't true that if you had sex before you're married, that your sex life is going to be terrible or worse or less good. Yeah. That's, that's the other side of it, right? Is that in order to get kids to commit to abstinence, we promised them that sex would be great in marriage and that it would be terrible outside of marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's another thing is that I've had women write to me and say, Hey, sinful sex feels pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so then they're like, so uh, I feel like I was lied to in that. And the, the thing is, the Bible never says that, that sin doesn't feel good for a time, right? right? And so this idea that like, you're always going to get an STD if you are immoral, or mm. that you'll never get an STD if you're faithful. Yeah. What about women whose husbands cheat on them or husbands whose wives cheat on? I mean, there's so many scenarios that were not addressed in these books that we weren't prepared for. And so... Oh, there's so much that could be said. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the women who like did have sex before they're married. And then they feel like they're damaged goods. And so they go into marriage with that attitude and that stops them from enjoying sex in marriage. Right. Because what the books all said was that sex was the greatest gift that you could give your spouse specifically that women could give their husbands. And so then, and, and virginal sex, right? So there's this idea that like you're giving your spouse a subpar gift on the wedding night. If you have not been, you know, if, if, either if, if you've been abused or if you've sinned sexually, that somehow you have less to offer your future spouse. And that is, that's just devastating. And that's, that's so anti-gospel, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and, and even the whole idea, I remember reading about, okay, so they tried to address this. They said second virginity or renewed purity or, you know, and just the whole idea of that really bothers me because we don't need to become virgins again in order to be whole And in order to be image bearers of God and in order to be valuable future spouses or valuable singles, 
And mm -hmm. so I don't, I don't like this idea that, you know, we recommit ourselves to virginity. Virginity is not the thing. Mm -hmm. It's not virginity. It's a life committed to Christ and repentance when we do sin and we will. And, you know, for me, I, I was trying to be the good girl. And so I saved myself for marriage, but that also gave me the chance to kind of excuse my own like internal sexual sin, right? My mm. thought life or other things because I was a virgin. And that's something I saw over and over again too, is that women thought, okay, if I could just stay a virgin, then I'm pure. And scripture does scripture is way more all encompassing when it comes to purity. Jesus said, if you look at someone with lust, you've mm -hmm. committed adultery. So we actually let ourselves off the hook on one hand. And then another hand piled burdens on ourselves that Jesus wants to remove. Mm -hmm. It's just a mess. Yeah. I've always, I like saying that our purity is not based on what we do with our bodies. Our purity is based on what Jesus did with his. Amen. I love that. And when we, when we get that wrong, we get it really wrong. We do. And it goes so really wrong. And, and, you know, I think what you were looking at in your book was the effect on people's faith and on people's relationship with God. And what we were looking at specifically was the effect on sex. Right, <laughs> so, right. You know, whether it's so needed. So that's, I'm so glad that you guys wrote this book. Yeah. So, but I love how you always bring it back to where is Jesus in all of this? Mm. That's, that's, that's one of the big questions. And I think that's what was missing from the message because one thing that always surprises me or that I can't quite figure out is why did we have to sell purity or virginity in that way? Like we had to bribe people. Why couldn't we just simply explain why God wants you to wait for marriage? Like it, it's almost like we gave this message, you need to wait. Otherwise you're going to be this terrible sinner and sex is going to be terrible and you're going to be rejected or you can wait and your life will be great instead of just explaining everything about sex and why God wants you to wait. Like it's, it's like, it's like we were treating teens, like they had no mental capacity or something. I think that's exactly right. You know, I taught high school English for about 10 years and it just struck me how, how often we underestimate teenagers. Mm-hmm. And when I would, so just for example, I would give them an assignment that was like college level without telling them and then just watch them meet that expectation and then tell them after. And they just kind of be in awe. But I mean, the thing is, is that I, I do think we infantilize them with the messages and we even insulted God saying, okay, you, your glory isn't enough motivation. Mm -hmm. So we got to make up some promises. Um, and, and the other thing I, I really believe that this desire to take abstinence education into the public sphere, while I can see the good motivation for that, what it did is it removed Jesus from the message. Mm -hmm. When you do that, then you just have a works, a works-based thing going, right? So yes. the only motivation is what you're going to get at the end. It can't be God's glory because you're not allowed to bring that message into the public schools. So I, I have a conflicted view of abstinence education in public schools. I, I think that I'm not saying that we shouldn't do it, but I think that it's part of the problem. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and that is interesting because when I was doing research for my book, Why I Didn't Rebel, mm -hmm. I was reading a lot about the effects of conservative Christianity and risky sexual behaviors. Mm -hmm. And conservative religious kids are more likely to engage in risky sexual behaviors because they don't know about right. safe sex or oh they goodness. don't prepare for it because they feel like if they prepare to have safe sex, they're saying they're going to have sex. So they end up pregnant. That's right. Because the less oh conservative kids at least have condoms somewhere in the right. house. Right. right. And they know, they understand. Yeah, that is, that and is also, really... they're actually less likely to even have sex. Less conservative Christian kids in mm -hmm. a lot of ways because they're more likely to do everything but sex, from what I've read. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> but because they have more of a well rounded understanding of how to prevent things and how things actually work, when you have a super conservative, yeah. religious upbringing. I really hope I can find these studies from so many years ago, but I wrote about them in Why I Didn't Rebel. Um, <laughs> but when you have a very, very conservative upbringing, there's just this, this mental block of if I've kissed, then I might as well have sex. Yes. Whereas kids yeah, who are raised to understand that sexuality, mm -hmm. it goes on a spectrum of not really sexual to we might make a baby and, and understand that you can stop along any part of that line. Yes versus yes. all or nothing black and white thinking uh yes. if you think about having any sort of protection anywhere near you you've practically already had sex and mm -hmm. so 
Mm-hmm. Oh, that's absolutely what was taught. You know, if anyone, I had friends who were on birth control for, you know, to control period symptoms, whatever. And it was like, oh, that's dangerous because now that they're on birth control for health reasons, yeah. they might be more. And so that's a, that is a really interesting point that you're bringing up that Christian kids, um, they don't have the same education. And even that education can instill, instill a healthy fear in, in teenagers, right? That like, mm-hmm. if they engage in sex early and they have a child and they're you know, 15, whereas Christian kids, all they know, as you said, is that if they kiss, they're not pure anymore. Yeah. And so it's like yeah. the rose is crumpled. So they might as well. Well, yeah. and I think we need to ask as parents too, where what's, what's our end goal yeah. for having our kids have a sexually healthy lifestyle? Is it just that they remain virgins mm-hmm. or is it that they are safe and they are not putting others at danger, right? In which case mm-hmm. talking to your kids about birth control and contraception, does that actually undo your end goal? Or does it actually help you get there, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if your 17 year old is dating someone and they're really quite serious, is it better that you scare them into remaining virgins but then they might just go all the way cause they're so shame filled mm-hmm. about it. They're like, well, we've already done this much. Might as well do mm-hmm. the whole thing. Or is it better to have a real talk about, hey, listen, if you get this girl pregnant, um, you know, know, like, Hey, you know what? Try your, like, you know, pray willpower is a thing, not as wise thing to be having sex, Mm -hmm. but also I want you to know your options to make sure that if you do have sex, you're not taking advantage or you're not Mm -hmm. going to be putting this young woman or your boyfriend or whoever in Mm -hmm. an uncomfortable or really difficult situation. Well, that brings up a really good point because it seems as though the church doesn't want to talk about consent either for the same reason. So it's like contraception and consent are secular ideas because you shouldn't be doing it. But the thing is, is that we've all seen all of our research, I think has shown that the conversation of consent is so important for Christians and we are not having that conversation in the right ways. Well, and bringing that back to your chapter, the chapter six, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're telling kids, wait, so you never have to wait again. What you're saying is don't have sex so that you have a partner that is always consenting because you, in essence, own them. Mm-hmm. That's right. That is exact. Yep. Yeah, that's the message. And that's so scary. And, and, you know, we, we, this is another subject, but rape within marriage is, yeah. is a problem as well. And I think it makes sense that it would be a problem specifically in Christian circles because of this teaching that once you get married, they owe you. Mm-hmm. And they, are, you know, and what a, what a sad, what a sad distortion of sex. We think of sex only be, being distorted by immorality outside of marriage, but what about the ways that we distort it with self extreme selfishness and abuse within marriage? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. We have a reader question, actually. I think oh, now our, our conversation has gone in this direction. And so I might, I'm going to, I'm going to pull up a reader question and read it to you. Okay. A woman writes in, And she says, my fantastic 19-year-old daughter just tearfully confessed to me that she and her boyfriend of two years are struggling in their physical relationship. Sex has not happened yet, and they are both Christians and want to remain pure until marriage. Due to school and military commitments, marriage is out of the question for at least a few more years. Besides Mm. setting up rules for their relationship, like never being alone together, what other advice is there? Is there a book that you could recommend? Oof. So... The question about, is there a book that you can recommend is the one I get the most and is, is a little ironic if you've read my book, right? Because one yeah. of my main points is that so often we go to, and I know we're all authors, so we clearly want people to read our books, yeah. <laughs> but, but this idea that there's a book that's the answer mm-hmm. that presents these kind of extra biblical rules that if you follow them, I think that <clears throat> what we've all found is that we all have our own unique temptations and unique strengths. And so a one size fits all purity guide outside of scripture is, is probably not the answer, but I completely understand the question. And I think there are resources. I mean, I do think that all of our books sound like they would be resources for this person, but as far as like a dating book that says, don't do this, don't do that. I would advise instead of reading a book about it, maybe to talk to some of, uh, you know, the older, wiser people in their life and say, okay, what would you recommend in, in our particular situation? You know, us, Mm-hmm. You know me, you know my struggles, you know him. What are some ways that we can, I would even say, what are some ways they can have intimacy, pure intimacy before marriage? Because it sounds like it's going to be hard um, yeah. a long road. So, you know, love letters and, you know, that verbal affirmation and things like that. 
where the physical will be able to catch up with it later on, maybe. But as far as just a specific book, I, I would struggle. I, I really love Lauren Winner's book, um, Real Sex. That's what it's called. That one's good. But um, I think that there's no specific guide. I think it has to be you asking God, okay, what are my what are my triggers? What, what have you given me the freedom to do and not do? And then ask, you know, your partner, the same things and then figure it out together. Cause it's about you yeah. um, and what you guys can yeah. and can't do. And, and no one else is the same as you. So yeah. I what don't I, know if that's, that's satisfactory. What I, found, what I found funny about that question too. And I, I think you'll have a lot to say about this. Cause you said mm-hmm. it, you said it in the book too, is this idea that they've done all kinds of things, but they're still pure and they want to stay pure oh yeah that's right it's that equation again Mm -hmm. of purity and virginity yeah right and i i see that a lot among young people like they've had oral sex they've done all these things but we haven't actually had sex so we're still good and again i feel like the problem is that we haven't explained why god wants sex to be in marriage like we we've just created this rule with right. no real talk about the, you know, the problems with, you don't want to bond, like you don't want, you don't want the sexual bond to get so strong that it takes over the emotional bond. And then you think you're closer than you really are. And then you make bad decisions about who to marry. Right? Like real. to me, that's the biggest one. Yeah. I, well, what I find so funny whenever I read, not funny, like ha ha funny, but ironic funny is we hear all the time, the idea that, you know, my wife, we had so much sex before we were married and now we have none. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I see a lot of the time is because we've told kids sex is what makes a baby, mm-hmm. right? They do mm-hmm. everything but sex until they can't stop themselves and they have sex. So they're touching each other, they're kissing, they're doing all these things. So before marriage, sex is like two hours of foreplay and then you have sex. Then you get married and you stop touching her and you stop doing oral (laughs) sex because you're allowed to do the real thing. Why would we deal with all these little (laughs) stuff that we only could do because we we didn't, we wanted to stay virgins. It's like, well, that's stuff that made her want the sex. (laughs) (laughs) If we yeah, if we teach kids about sexuality as a whole, where it's mm-hmm. like, hey, huh, did you know you can orgasm multiple different ways? Um, and right. yes, they're right. all sex. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's, mm-hmm. I think, I think this is real. Yeah, this is what we do. We talk about <laughs> orgasm, <laughs> oral sex as a mother daughter. So, but <laughs> you guys are amazing. Um, no, I think. Oh goodness, you guys are bringing up so many. I feel like we could have ten podcasts and not cover just even this one topic, because there's so much to talk about, but you, you are right that this idea that virginity equals purity is not from scripture. And we need to crush that because Mm. purity is so much more encompassing. It it, it encompasses our minds, our hearts, our bodies. And so this idea that we kind of like work our way around this one thing that we can't do, that's not about honoring God. And that's not really, that's not helpful in appreciating your partner as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this person who wrote in, I would encourage them because you guys brought up something I missed in that question, which is just that maybe step back and, and, and say, how can we restore one another's dignity? Mm-hmm. And oh, let's, like let's, let's do that. And, and don't worry so much about the physical, um, step back from that. It sounds like that would be a good idea. Um, and, and figure out if you guys, you know, if you care about each other in the right ways, um, because marriage is about so much more. It's not about less than sex, but it's about so much more. Mm-hmm. And now we have reader question number two. Do you want to summarize? Yes, it's just a long one. So I'll just summarize what she okay. said. So we have this reader emailing us. She's a single woman who's in her early adult years, quite mm-hmm. young. She's never been in a relationship before, but she's just feeling like it's going to happen soon. But she's got a problem that she's emailing us about. Which is she first was exposed to porn when she was 14. She's Mm. been watching it and masturbating Mm -hmm. ever since. She's got a super high sex drive. She has tried to stop, but whenever Mm -hmm. she, you know, she talked to one woman who said, well, masturbation isn't necessarily wrong. It's just the pornography use. And she said, that's fine. Mm. So she tried masturbating without the porn. It just takes her so long. She ends up going back to the porn just to be able to finish off. And she always feels dirty about it. And she's Mm -hmm. worried that when she gets married, Mm. sex is not going to be great. Or she's not going to be able to orgasm without pornography. Mm-hmm. what does she do yeah because she wants this mm-hmm. she wants this healthy view of sex and she wants to stay pure but then there's all of this going on my heart breaks for this reader mm-hmm. because it, it's just so hard and um i would just want to tell her first you're not alone 
so Mm -hmm. many people, men and women struggle with the same thing that she's struggling with. And I think the pull uh, and the ease of access for us in this, in today's culture, when it comes to pornography is, it's just devastating. And so it's, it's hard because I'm sure she feels enslaved to it. I think the first thing I would say is that if she is a Christian, there's this promise that she can cling to, which is that we are no longer enslaved to sin. And so I find a lot of strength in knowing that I actually have the ability to say no to sin because of the Holy Spirit. So I can't do it in my own flesh. I'm weak, but we have been given this promise that when we're in Christ, we, we don't have to always just go with what our body or mind or heart is telling us to do. We actually can say no. And there's just, I think that there's a lot of comfort in knowing that she, she has that power. Now she might not feel that she has that power, but in Christ she does. I mean, the easy thing to say would just be that until she stops, you know, the guilt and the distorted view of sex is going to continue. But I know it's hard. It's Mm -hmm. addictions are difficult to break. So Mm -hmm. she should reach out to a few close friends and ask them to help her to Mm -hmm. break this habit. I mean, it's like drugs or drinking or any other kind of addiction where you need outside help. And it's so hard to ask for help when it comes to sexual sin because we're so ashamed. But I think that both pornography and masturbation, even though I I do treat them differently in the book, and I think they are two different things, I think they both create a very selfish view of sex. And so it's very much like it's about me completing, right? And and Mm -hmm. that's not what married sex is about. I'm not saying that that's not important in married sex, but married sex is about unity and self-giving and love. And it's not always going to be about having... A bunch mm-hmm. of orgasms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, in singleness, if if that's your goal with sexual desire, um, you are you're training yourself to have a very selfish view of sex. That's my opinion. I think that's one of the most dangerous things about masturbation is that even though Scripture does not say it's a sin, I think it can. First of all, it can be very addictive, but I think it creates this this expectation that this is what I'm owed. And then in marriage, you're like, oh, I won't struggle with it anymore because my husband will do it for me or my wife will do it for me. But just like we said earlier, marriage is not about getting that sexual satisfaction every second you want it. And so she is um, continuing in that will create a pattern of selfish expectation, but there's so much hope for her. There's so much hope. There's so much forgiveness waiting and she'll, she'll stumble and fall along the way. But um, I would just encourage her that she has the power to overcome this in Christ. And I, and I will say about masturbation, because in our orgasm course, we explain for women like, Hey, if you've never orgasmed before, and you don't know how arousal feels, you don't know mm. how your body feels. Masturbation can be a great tool to help you mm. figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that's why we're saying like, it's not a sin. It can be unhealthy the same way that like, you know, mm-hmm. gluttony is a sin, right? Eating that addictive, good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, and every now and then having a giant feast is really good. Yeah. You know, so like we, mm-hmm. we're not saying that masturbation is always wrong, you know, mm-hmm. like, yeah, if you're a woman right. who's struggled with anorgasmia, who got married and wedding night was horrendous and this struggle mm-hmm. with sexual mm-hmm. pain and with accepting right. sexuality, like that can actually be a very life-giving tool. Or yes. even just, even just figuring out how you like to be touched because yeah, right. there's by a few, but but this is a separate situation, yes. and and right. I think too, you know, one thing that 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 research has found is that the further you get away from the porn, mm-hmm. the less the porn impacts your fantasy life. Yeah, I mean, I know makes sense. people decades still have stuff pop into their head that they saw. You but know, again, again, earlier, though, this but, sounds scary. Mm-hmm. What is it called when something pops into your head that happened a while ago? A memory. A memory, yeah. It's not a mental Rolodex. It's not un, like it's not this scary mm. big thing of you're still enslaved to sin. You have a memory. Yeah. Right? Like <laughs> we have to see. Like it's like, okay to have a memory. And and the further you get away from good. things, the further your memory is often impacted. So Yeah, the same know. way that like that thing you did in eighth grade when you accident when you barfed on the school trip haunted you every single day for right. the first four weeks. Then you thought about it once a month and then you <laughs> thought about it maybe twice a year. And now you're 47. And every now and then at two in the morning you wake up, oh my gosh, Tommy saw me barf on the school bus when I was <laughs> But it's not the same level of salience, right? And so yeah, like right. if you're struggling with pornography, we talk a lot in especially in purity culture areas of the church about like how porn rewires the brain or how your brain looks different now. And it's like, well, I, I will be be quite frank here. 
from what I studied in neuroscience and neuropsychology in my undergrad, most things rewire the brain. Like mm -hmm. the, our brain sure. is meant to have different connections, right. have stronger or weaker. Right. When you're depressed, you rewire the brain. When you're anxious, yeah. you rewire the brain. And you know what yeah. therapy does? It changes that. Yeah. So the same thing can be said mm -hmm. for pornography. You haven't permanently mm -hmm. damaged yourself. Mm -hmm. You haven't said like, I'm never going to be able to have a healthy view of sex or I'm never right. going to be able to orgasm without pornography. Right. right. Like you've just got your brain going this direct, going like going to the right. And you have right. to tell your brain, no, 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 no. We have to <laughs> scooch on back over to where we're supposed to be. That's right. And that's yeah. why we need to stop talking about like pornography and sexual sin or like fantasy life. Like it's, it's a, you've now changed how your brain works. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the reason that we talked about it like that was again, those, it's a fear tactic, right? So yeah. the desire is to prevent someone from, we'd obviously want to prevent someone from getting addicted to pornography, but oh. what you're, what you're bringing up is that there are so many people we're speaking to who are reading our books who have been or are addicted and they, they hear that message and think, well, it's over for me. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and so what you're saying is there's hope we can change. And, you know, we know that with all our other sin habits, we know that those of us who were saved from, you know, I was, I grew up in the church, but people who were saved later in life, there's so much you have to unravel from. It doesn't mean that it's impossible. It's not impossible. And I, I love the way you're speaking about this idea that not only do things rewire our brain, but then we can rewire them again. Right. So this, this woman, like she's not going to be enslaved to this forever. And there is so much hope. And it does not mean that she can't have a wonderful future marriage. Yeah. What I'd love to see more of when we're talking about sexual sin, about like pornography use, about masturbation, about anything that we talk about right now, like it's you have changed the trajectory of your life forever, mm. is that healing and change is not only possible, but it's actually normal. Mm -hmm. The normal thing mm -hmm. is to be able to heal and change from this. And we know that because of evidence-based therapies. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based therapies mean there's evidence that says that if you go through this therapy, you are more likely to get better, mm -hmm. which means the norm is you're going to get better. And that, that, that happens throughout multiple areas of our lives. And I think that what we're, we're realizing more and more as more and more people speak up about purity culture and how it affected people and how we've talked about sex is that we, for some reason in the church have taken sex and sexual sin and said, this is the one thing where it's not normal to get healing and be a whole person. Right. And so you need yeah. to be so careful because you do one thing wrong. You watch porn once you make out with someone you shouldn't have made out with you, you know, go a little bit further than you want. You let them touch your boob, anything like that. Right. And you've now permanently altered the course of your life in a way that right. cannot be undone. And that's just not true, even without bringing Christ into the equation. And so when we right. bring Christ into the equation, it's even less true. <laughs> like, yeah. So important. And because again, we're not just talking to a bunch of 16 year old virgins. We're talking to people who've experienced, some have experienced sexual abuse. Some of them have sex, sinned in sexual ways and that's our audience. And so if our messages are all just these fear, extra biblical fear tactics to make sure that teens don't have sex, we're neglecting so many people who need that hope and of healing that you guys are talking about that, like you said, can be found in therapy. And if you bring Jesus into it, like you said, it's even, there's even more hope. And so I think it's so important when we're reassessing purity culture and we're reassessing the ways that we talk about sex that we take into account that we live in a fallen world. Like who is our audience? Our audience is not just a bunch of virgins or people who've never done anything sexually. And so um, we need to care about them too. In the same way that when we write about sex and we're focusing on marrieds, we want to be aware that singles are listening to how we talk about sex. So if we make it sound like sex is the ultimate end all be all in life, that you can't have a fulfilled life without sex, mm -hmm. singles will believe that they are missing out on the true fulfillment of life. And we have communicated that in some of these books. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The other thing we've communicated, I think, is that men are sexual in a way that women aren't. And I think that's what right. this reader's qu reader question brings up is we are taught so much that all men lust and women don't. Mm -hmm. And so women, you need to be responsible to make sure he doesn't lust 
Right. Um, and you, you cover that so well mm -hmm. in the book uh, about the problem with putting the responsibility for men's sin on women. But here's this, this, this young woman who's writing that she's the one who struggled with porn right. and she did through her whole teenage years. And it's like, okay, so how is she going to feel even worse in the church? Because she's told sure. well, porn isn't your issue. Oh, well, I think there's just this double guilt that Christian women feel because we were taught that we weren't really sexual, then mm -hmm. if we experience sex, even just experiencing healthy sexual desire is a source of shame for Christian women, which I'm assuming you guys have done the research on this that might have something to do with the vaginismus and things like that, that mm -hmm. um, we don't just feel guilt for sin. We feel guilt for our sexuality that is good, that God created. And so it's just a hot mess. Yeah. 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 The thing I find so funny, and this is just, this is just me being snarky. Okay. Like this is just me being a bit snarky is what I find so funny is the group of Christianity that is so obsessed with gender roles and with like making sure women stay in their place and women know this and make sure women make sure that men don't lust. And because there's just all these biological things, it's just how men are created biologically to lust in a way that women aren't. That has been contested all throughout research. Like we know mm. for a fact that women's brains light up the same way that men's do when they see sexually erotic stimuli, but we, but we talk about it in the church as a biological gender role, mm -hmm. right? It's a biological gender difference. You know what these pastors always conveniently forget is an actual biological gender difference between men and women, multiple orgasms. <laughs> so if you're going to be obsessed with gender roles yeah. and gender-based sexuality in terms of women are like this, men are like this, then why on earth do we have a 47% orgasm gap? In fact, we should be having it that every woman orgasms twice for every time their husband does. If you're that focused on the gender roles, like at some point you can't pick and choose if you're going to do it, just go all in, just say that women can have multiple orgasms. Women are biologically created to do so. So you know, that's funny. <laughs> it's just these are the kinds of things where it's like we talk all this time about how women aren't sexual and men are. It's like, where on earth do we get that from how God created us? Yeah. Like, not from science and not from scripture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But again, I think throughout history, the idea of the woman who wants sex is dangerous because then she might go and have sex with someone she's not supposed to, and then she's right. not under the control of her husband or her father. Anyway, it gets all messy and it's, it's all. Set. Well, and it, and there's this, you know, weird idea that women are morally superior to men and, and that somehow mm -hmm. we have more natural sexual restraint than men. And, so, and then of course, if we have more natural sexual restraint than any sexual immorality that happens is our fault because we were the one that could have stopped it. And so then that's a whole nother topic, but it's, it's a super important one. Yeah. What I like too in your book is that you actually did call out other books, which is great because we did that big time and I know that we're going to get slammed for it. So I'm just glad you did it first. Your book was published first. So there you hey. go. But one of the things in every man's battle, which you do talk about here, oh. uh, there's a story, I forget what page it's on. It's a horrendous one about a youth group volunteer and he was 35 years old, I think. And he'd been volunteering with his youth group. And there was this 15 year old girl oh. that, and, and, the story is that he groomed her right. for abuse. And then the way that it's portrayed in Every Man's Battle, though, is that this girl was, was all into it and she was very flirty and that it was consensual when they right. did. But, but then that very night she told her parents. And 15-year-old girls who have consensual Quote sex unquote. with the youth group, married youth group volunteer, do not tend to tell their parents right away. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was rape in more than one way. It was statutory rape. Well, it was rape in three ways. It was statutory rape. It was rape because he was in a position of authority Yep. and it wasn't consensual or she wouldn't have told her parents for, I mean, there's, there's all kinds yeah. of things going on there. No, right? That is so, so disturbing. And there was multiple examples in other books too, where, you know, living in a post me too generation, you can look back at these writings and just see that people described situations of sexual assault as times when the woman forfeited her purity. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's just, it, it gave me chills. And there were a lot more that I didn't include in the book because there were a few that I thought this is this person's story. And I was just thinking of the author specifically. I didn't want to, I wanted to respect that it was their story, but it was very disturbing to me and heartbreaking to me that some of these writers themselves writing about themselves and what they'd been through didn't recognize that they had been sexually assaulted. And yeah. instead they thought they viewed it as their own sin. And so 
we have to be willing to step back and untangle culpability, not yeah. because we are sinless, but because you can only be forgiven for the things that you've actually done. And some of these women and men too, I'm sure are walking around with guilt that is not their own and it's worth untangling. Yeah. And the other thing in that, in that scenario is that, and I'm, I might be remembering this off. I don't know where the heading was, but I remember that it was in a section on violating your neighbor's fence. And so oh. it was like the sin that was done was against the father, I think, or yeah. it didn't even make sense. It was like, ah, like, oh, this youth group leader, now this poor dad has a non-virginal daughter. Like, I don't even know no. whose neighbor he was supposed to have trespassed. It was but... just, or maybe it was the girl's future husband, all that kind of yeah. stuff as well that gets talked about in these circles, but it's just. But, but she was never the focus of the sin. The focus of the sin in that, in that story was that he had, he had sinned against his own purity. Yeah. Well, because when you are someone who comes from a entitled sexual mentality, when you're someone who sees sex as something that you get and you desire to kind mm -hmm. of conquer, you get to kind of claim for yourself versus mm -hmm. something that you share with a partner, a willing partner who is actually mm -hmm. legally able to consent because mm -hmm. they are not an actual child. <laughs> um, then you see... Yeah. When you, when you have that entitlement complex, you see sex as something that is all about you. And so you don't even notice the victim. The victim doesn't even mm, matter because yeah. there isn't even a victim yeah. because they're not a person. They're an object. And so Girl the, preach. Yeah. And so the authors writing Every Man's Battle didn't even think about the 15 year old because sex all throughout Every Man's Battle is something that women give and men take. That's right. You know, it's vaginas give sex because they don't, they, again, she's not even a woman. So I won't mm -hmm. even say woman. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. like it's something where men take it from anyone who is physically able to give it, yeah. you know, as long as they allow them to take it. And that's the problem in every man's battle. They say the problem that men, men watch porn because their wives won't give them enough sex. Mm -hmm. You're oh, not letting women are always to blame the, the way that women are dehumanized in that book uh, just wow. shook me to my core. Oh yeah. yeah. No, the descriptions of women are horrible. Someday maybe we'll do a podcast where we just Read, read the descriptions, descriptions of, women. of women. Oh, oh yeah, because people would be amazed. A trigger warning for Pete's sake. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> yeah. No, I I just so appreciate your boldness and the things you're saying. You are yeah. and okay, so that was yes. those were those were reader questions. Yeah. One oh, okay. segment that we always have is is some new research oh, that good. we want to talk about. This one isn't new. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I have some stats. The first one was actually something that I did when I did the, when I did the research for the Good Girls Guide to Great Sex many years ago, and I and I did I did ask about honeymoons, and what what I found on the honeymoon night is mm -hmm. that if you're like for virgins going into their honeymoon, like for twenty percent sex is is amazing, and I, this mm, is okay. big this is big generalities, but twenty percent roughly it's amazing. Twenty percent it's abysmal probably didn't even have sex, you know, right. it wasn't possible. It hurt too much. And then the other 60%, it was just really blah. Like it was nothing right. to write home about. It was really awful. And combine that, we did another survey, very informal one on uh, Facebook and Twitter last fall, where we asked, were you aroused? Yeah, we asked of people who are virgins on their wedding night. Were you aroused the first time you had sex? And oh, 52%, interesting. 52% said no. Oh my gosh. Whew. And so, yeah. And so my question is, wow, is this whole purity culture idea and the way that we do like the wedding night, are we setting people up for failure? Because now you feel like, well, I have to do it. Well, again, the question comes back. Why are we having sex? Are you having sex because you are married or are you having sex because you want to have sex? Because hmm. right? if you're only having sex because you are married, yeah. your body might not get in gear because you just yeah. had to go through a whole wedding day for Pete's sake. Yeah. The wedding day is so stressful. You know what happens before the wedding day? The week before the wedding day. Like, <laughs> yeah. And that's also very stressful and very tiring. Yeah. And so these poor women who have never had sex before, who have probably had varying levels of arousal beforehand, right? Because there's mm -hmm. going to be women who mm -hmm. have had other forms of, you mm -hmm. know, touching and stuff but there's also women who just this is, this is their foray into their sexuality right and it's coming off of the most stressful week of their life the biggest and longest most tiring day and then they're in the bedroom they're supposed to put on this little piece of white lacy lingerie that their you know aunt got them for their right right shower party and they're like i just want to go to sleep but instead they face and they're like come hither and their body is just off 
Right. Or they just want to make out because maybe for them, that's the first, I mean, some couples go into marriage and they haven't touched at all. And so what I've often wondered about that is like, there's no warm up for those, those virgins to get to even enjoy those kind of levels of intimacy that lead up to sex. And there, but we have put such an expectation on the honeymoon night that couples absolutely believe that they have to have sex that night. I wish that books had talked about the fact that in marriage, sex is something that can get better over time, that it's something it's part of the joy of sex and marriage is that you're learning each other. Mm-hmm. But instead, I feel like it was talked about like the first time is it's going to be instantly, you guys will know what what's up, you know, with each other's bodies, and it'll be great. And so then what happens is 52%, um, you know, uh, they believe that they've either failed, um, that this is their sex life is doomed, which it's totally not. And it's just so sad that we set um, these, you know, young Christians up to believe that if it's not great, or it doesn't happen on the honeymoon night, that it's all over. Well, and I think that's where coming back to what you were saying about like giving kids an actual understanding of sexuality, which gives them more encompassing understanding right. of it all, so, which then allows them to make decisions for themselves to wait. Mm-hmm. It helps yeah. with this because when you live in a culture where the expectation is you're going to have sex before you are married, mm. that's also a culture that expects you're going to have sex because you want to have sex. Right. So we have songs like, you know, it feels like the first time, right? Right, right. Like like all those kinds of things implying that it was a good thing, you know, but what happens when you're in a dating relationship where you're expecting to have sex at some point, but only when you want to, well, again, you're going to do a lot of other stuff. You're going to like, like what you were saying, those levels of arousal, you're going to start with kissing, then you make out and then it's heavy petting. And then like you naturally progress. And Mm -hmm. so the first time often does feel really good because it's a natural progression physically of when you're training your body to get aroused with this person. So that when you do have sex, you are aroused versus if your first time you skipped all those steps and we do this, this chapter four. Yeah. Right. Like this is what we, in our book, we talk about this in chapter four is the, the levels of have you skipped steps? Did you go from kissing and maybe light making out straight to sex? Like on the wedding night, right? Like maybe we, we just enjoy prolonged making out first, you know, you enjoy having like, you know, feeling like, Ooh, he's going to try to take my shirt off. Like you, you you do bit by bit. And I think then we'll actually be able to let kids know who then become adults. Like we teach them that sexuality is about so much more than whether or not you've penetrated someone. Right. Or been That's so important. And, and those, everything you're saying, those are not things that are addressed because I think there's this idea that again, the more you teach Christian kids about sex, the more that they're going to do it. But I think what you're pointing out is that that's not actually how it works. And I'm sure you guys talk about this a lot more. I didn't talk about this much in my book, but Christian teenagers aren't talk too much about how male bodies work and how female bodies work. Oh, actually I did learn about how male bodies worked, but I don't think men are taught. um, I mean, in, in every man's battle, is it discussed at all how to um, please a woman? No, it's never mentioned. It's It's never even mentioned once that she can actually feel good. Yeah. Right. It's she's she's the outlet and she's what a merciful vial of vial of methadone. (laughs) (laughs) That one was gross. And after he's cheated. Right. I think that was the passage where it says that if the husband's been unfaithful, it's her job to help him stay pure by giving him enough sex to keep him pure. I mean, it just it's there's so much in that book. Oh, yeah it's yeah. such a mess it's yeah. such a mess yeah i know because because i think what we would love to see more of and, and what we're trying to do too is is like talk about sex as that progression yeah right and and in a way purity culture understands this which is why they tried to get rid of kissing because right? you no know, because like they know okay kissing leads to this which leads mm-hmm. to this leads to this which leads to this but kissing is not sex (laughs) (laughs) but but there is that progression and the way the purity culture handled it was saying let's get rid of the whole thing altogether Mm -hmm. but I think that we need to talk more about that progression in a healthy way and that the expectation is like Mm -hmm. once you once you're married you now get to enjoy that progression not Right. You now get to have sex. And for some people that progression is going to happen on the first night. And for some people mm-hmm. that progression might take longer, yes. but mm-hmm. it needs to be still seen as a progression. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really, oh my goodness. We need to talk more about that for sure. Yeah. And I, I don't know, I, you know, it's a hard thing to figure out what to say to teens instead. And, and, 
you know, I love how you started that conversation and it's important. I felt like I did it well with you guys. Uh, you, okay. Here's the thing. We got all of the purity culture messages in our home. Totally. I was handed Josh Harris when I was 13. Yeah. I told her it was a yep. great book. Yep. yep. I read it so many times. I repent. I had a whole blog. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe someday we'll read my old blog post when I was 14 about how I will, you know, only ever court and everything. But the thing is that in our house, because we talked about everything and because of your job, we also actually all naturally just started going the other direction. Mm-hmm. Like we didn't only hear purity culture stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like we talked about sex. We talked about all the stuff. Like we knew that your book was about mm-hmm. some women did not orgasm mm-hmm. and uh, you were trying mm-hmm. to help them enjoy sex, right? Yeah. Like, and I was what, yeah. 15 when I came out? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like we 17. Were, 17. I, was, I was 15 when you were writing it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but it's, it's, it was very much a part of our, our family life. So like, mm-hmm. I do want to say that also to anyone who's like, has teenagers, like, oh my gosh, I've totally screwed up my kids. Like I was again, handed Josh Harris. Yeah. I totally screwed her up in the um, beginning. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and we were totally fine because we were able to talk about it right. honestly. And also, I mean, yeah. she started trying to match make me like crazy the minute I hit like 16. So you're like, you need to find a good Christian guy. So anytime we find a good Christian guy, she's like, oh, do you like him? So <laughs> yeah, yeah. But just like you were saying, you know, about the rewiring the brain, like those of us who've been raised on purity culture, who have wrong views of sex, that's not the end. Like we can, and and for parents who listen to podcasts like this and feel guilt for for handing their kids Joshua Harris, know that there is so much hope ahead for your child, who's probably now an adult. We can learn, we can reassess. And I think having these conversations is where it starts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the big thing that I have learned and this, I, I wasn't comfortable with this when you guys were teenagers, if I could do it over again, this is what I would learn is that more information is never the problem. Mm, that's a really good point. And I think, I think the thing too, is that we actually had all the information, Mm -hmm. um, because frankly, of our friends. And I think most teenagers who aren't only in conservative Christian circles will eventually learn all the information. Mm -hmm. Um, They will. They will. And so the parents who say, oh, it's too soon to talk to them need to recognize that their kids are going to hear it then from a source that's not you. So is that what you want? Do you want them to have their worldview of sex shaped by their fellow teenage friends? Yeah. That's what's going to happen if you don't talk about it. Yeah. And just because you talk about masturbation doesn't mean they're going to do it. Just because you right. talk about pornography doesn't mean they're going to seek it out. Just right. because you, and I think that's the fear is, well, once we talk about it, they're going to get curious, but they're going to get curious anyway. Yeah. And so, probably sooner than parents realize. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Rachel. And again, Talking Back to Purity Culture is a great book. It's a it's a great book if you grew up like Rachel, like Rebecca in the middle of purity culture and you're still processing that. Yeah, if you um, just if you just want to feel like someone gets you. <laughs> you know, like just just gets it. Mm-hmm. and sees you and says yes you're not alone mm-hmm. so we will we will have links to where you can get that book in the description and in the post that goes along with this podcast and where you can find rachel but thank you so much we'll have to have you back on sometime we'll talk oh, about yeah. this. this was kindred spirits yes <laughs> loved getting to talk to you ladies you too all right bye bye so thank you for joining me on the Bear Marriage Podcast. You can find me, Sheila Ray Gregoire, at lovehonorandvacuum.com, where for the next couple of months, we're going to be talking about some of the messed up messages we've gotten and how we can reframe them and put them in the light of Christ. And so I hope you will join me. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to have a lot of fun guests on the podcast too. So we will see you next week.